Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis, The Language of Religion, Part 2 I am not, of course, denying that there are other love poems, some of Wyatt's, for example, where the poet is wholly concerned with his own emotions and we get no impression of the woman at all. I deny that this is the universal rule. Finally, we have those instances where poetic language expresses an experience which is not accessible to us in normal life at all, an experience which the poet himself may have imagined and not, in the ordinary sense, had. An instance would be when Asia, in Prometheus Unbound, says, My soul is an enchanted boat. If anyone thinks this is only a more musical and graceful way of saying, Gee, this is fine, I disagree with him. An enchanted boat moves without oar or sail to its destined haven. Asia is at that moment undergoing a process of transfiguration, almost of apotheosis, effortless and unimpeded movement to a goal desired, but not yet seen, is the point. If we were experiencing Asia's apotheosis, we should feel like that. In fact, we have never experienced apotheosis, nor, probably, has Shelley. But to communicate the emotion which would accompany it is to make us know more fully than before what we meant by apotheosis. This is the most remarkable of the powers of poetic language, to convey to us the quality of experiences which we have not had, or perhaps can never have, to use factors within our experience so that they become pointers to something outside our experience, as two or more roads on a map show us where a town that is off the map must lie. Many of us have never had an experience like that which Wordsworth records near the end of Prelude 13. But when he speaks of the visionary dreariness, I think we get an inkling of it. Other examples would be, for me, Marvel's Green Thought in a Green Shade, and, for everyone, Pope's Die of a Rose in Aromatic Pain. Perhaps the most astonishing is in the Paradiso, where Dante says that as he rose from one sphere of the Ptolemaic universe to the next, he knew that he had risen only by finding that he was moving forward more quickly. It must be remembered that I have been speaking simply of poetic language, not of poetry. Poetry, of course, has other characteristics besides its language. One of them is that it is very often fiction. It tells about people who never really lived, and events that never really took place. Hence Plato's jibe that the poets are liars. But surely it would be a great confusion to attach the note of fiction to every specimen of poetic language. You just can't tell whether Keats's description is of a winter night that really occurred, or of one he imagined. The use of language in conveying the quality of a real place, a person, or thing, is the same we should need to convey the quality of a feigned one. My long and perhaps tedious digression on poetic language, is now almost at an end. My conclusion is that such language is by no means merely an expression, nor a stimulant of emotion, but a real medium of information.
which information may, like any other, be true or false? True as Mr. Young on Weir's, or false as the bit in Beowulf about the dragon sniffing along the path. It often does stimulate emotion, by expressing emotion, but usually in order to show us the object to which such emotion would be the response. A poet, Mr. Robert Conquest, has put something like my view. Quote, Observation of real events includes the observer, heart, and all. The common measurable features are obtained by omitting this part. But there is also a common aspect in the emotional shared by other members of the species. This is conveyed by art. The poem combines all these. End quote. Because events, as real events really are, and feigned events would really be if they occurred, cannot be conveyed without bringing in the observer's heart and the common emotional reaction of the species, it has been falsely concluded that poetry represented the heart for its own sake, and nothing but the heart. But I must not go too far. I think poetic language does convey information, but it suffers from two disabilities in comparison with scientific. One, it is verifiable or falsifiable only to a limited degree, and with a certain fringe of vagueness. Not all men, only men of some discrimination, would agree, on seeing Burns's mistress, that the image of a red, red rose was good, or, as might be, bad. In that sense, scientific statements are, as people say now, far more easily cached. But the poet might, of course, reply that it always will be easier to cash a check for 30 shillings than one for 1,000 pounds. That the scientific statements are checks, in one sense, for very small amounts, giving us, out of the teeming complexity of every concrete reality, only the common measurable features. 2. Such information as poetic language has to give can be received only if you are ready to meet it halfway. It is no good holding a dialectical pistol to the poet's head and demanding how the deuce a river could have hair, or thought be green, or a woman a red rose. You may win, in the sense of putting him to a nonplus, but if he had anything to tell you, you will never get it by behaving in that way. You must begin by trusting him. Only by so doing will you find out whether he is trustworthy or not. Credo ut intelligam. I believe, in order that I may understand, it is time some theological expression came in, is here the only attitude. Now, as I see it, the language in which we express our religious beliefs and other religious experiences is not a special language, but something that ranges between the ordinary and the poetical. But even when it begins by being ordinary, it can usually, under dialectical pressure, be found to become either theological or poetical. An example will best show what I mean by this trichotomy. I think the words, I believe in God, are ordinary language. If you press us by asking what we mean, we shall probably have to move in one of two directions. We might say, I believe in an incorporeal entity personal in the sense that it can be the subject and object of love, on which all other entities are unilaterally dependent. That is what I call theological language, though far from a first-class specimen of it. 
in it we are attempting, so far as is possible, to state religious matter in a form more like that we use for scientific matter. This is often necessary for purposes of instruction, clarification, controversy, and the like. But it is not the language religion naturally speaks. We are applying precise and therefore abstract terms to what for us is the supreme example of the concrete. If we do not always feel this fully, that, I think, is because nearly all who say or read such sentences, including unbelievers, really put into them much that they know from other sources, tradition, literature, etc. But for that, it would hardly be more information than there are 15 degrees of frost would be to those who had never experienced frost. And this is one of the great disadvantages under which the Christian apologist labors. Apologetics is controversy. You cannot conduct a controversy in those poetical expressions which alone convey the concrete. You must use terms as definable and univocal as possible. And these are always abstract. And this means that the thing we are really talking about can never appear in the discussion at all. We have to try to prove that God is in circumstances where we are denied every means of conveying who God is. It is faintly parallel to the state of a witness who has to try to convey something so concrete as the known character of a friend under cross-examination. Under other conditions, he might possibly succeed in giving you a real impression of him, but not under hostile cross-examination. You remember Hamlet's speech to Horatio. Horatio, thou art e'en as just a man, etc. But you could never have had it in a witness box. That, then, is one way in which we could go on from I believe in God, the theological, in a sense alien to religion, crippling, omitting nearly all that really matters, yet, in spite of everything, sometimes successful. On the other hand, you could go on, following the spontaneous tendency of religion, into poetical language. Asked what you meant by God, you might say, God is love, or the Father of lights, or even, underneath are the everlasting arms. From what has gone before, you will understand that I do not regard these poetical expressions as merely expressions of emotion. They will, of course, express emotion in any who utters them, and arouse emotion in any who hears them with belief. But so would the sentence, Fifty Russian divisions landed in the south of England this morning. Momentous matter, if believed, will arouse emotion whatever the language. Further, these statements make use of emotion, as Burns makes use of our emotions about roses. All this is, in my view, consistent with their being essentially informative. But, of course, informative only to those who will meet them halfway. The necessity for such poetic expressions is closely connected with the grounds on which they are believed. They are usually two, authority and religious experience. Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because he said so. The other evidence about him has convinced them that he was neither a lunatic nor a quack. 
Now, of course, the statement cannot mean that he stands to God in the very same physical and temporal relation which exists between offspring and male parent in the animal world. It is, then, a poetical statement. And such expression must be here necessary because the reality he spoke of is outside our experience. And here, once more, the religious and the theological procedure diverge. The theologian will describe it as analogical, drawing our minds at once away from the subtle and sensitive exploitations of imagination and emotion with which poetry works to the clear-cut but clumsy analogies of the lecture room. He will even explain in what respects the father-son relationship is not analogical to the reality, hoping by elimination to reach the respects in which it is. He may even supply other analogies of his own, the lamp and the light which flows from it, or the like. It is all unavoidable and necessary for certain purposes, but there is some death in it. The sentence, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, cannot be all got into the form, there is between Jesus and God an asymmetrical, social, harmonious relation involving homogeneity. Religion takes it differently. A man who is both a good son and a good father, and who is continually urged to become a better son and a better father by meditation on the divine fatherhood and sonship, and who thus comes in the end to make that divine relation the norm to which his own human sonship and fatherhood are still merely analogical, is best receiving the revelation. It would be idle to tell such a man that the formula, is the Son of God, tells us, what is almost zero, that an unknown X is, in an unknown respect, like the relation of father and son. He has met it halfway. Information has been given him, as far as I can see, in the only way possible. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>